0: And now, Lord, as we open your word, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that this passage would, that has come to us at such a price, would teach us and grow us. Help us be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are in 1 Corinthians. If you haven't, if you're a guest with us this morning, we work our way through the different books of the Bible and you've happened to join us at, well, we're at 1 Corinthians chapter one and I'm going to be reading from verse 10 to 17. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? 1 Corinthians chapter one, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow a Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the previous passage, if you weren't here last week, it was uh, a letter for, as Paul began his letter to the Corinthians, he told them uh, that he was so thankful, he praised them for the gifts that they had, for the grace that had poured out on them, and he was encouraging them that Jesus would sustain them guiltless until his return. And then Paul jumps right into addressing the numerous problems that they had. Well, each issue, of course, was very important for him to, to take the time to write it down and deliver the letter to them. This one at the beginning of the letter seems to be the most urgent. That's why I think he started with this one. It was the one heaviest on his heart. It was about the quarreling and the division that was taking place. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. From the first churches onward, there have been problems which all center around one thing, man's ego. Do I hear an amen? We are born with a selfish nature, and from our first crying demands, we grow up practicing how to get our own way. We who are in Christ are supposed to have crucified our old nature when we came to Christ, but we learn from the letter of Galatians that that old nature is always going to be battling with a spirit that God has given us. We need to crucify that old nature day in and day out, sometimes 100 times a day. Amen? Amen. At least that's true for me. So it shouldn't be surprising when we see quarrels and factions arise within the church body. Whenever you have a group of people, there will inevitably be strife over who's going to have their way, who's right. These will be strong, there's going to be strong personalities that argue, and there's going to be quiet personalities who become offended. And when egos are wounded, it ends in division among us. Ideally, the church should have, be led by godly elders who seek God's leading and will through prayer and the revelation of his word discern God's direction. The congregation should then submit to the ruling of the elders on major issues. But in the minor interpersonal issues, we should all prefer others above ourselves and refuse to be offended. If there's one mantra I would like the church to remember beyond that our essentials of our faith, it's we should all prefer others above ourselves and refuse to be offended. Please take that with you. If you're a guest with us, take it to your church and spread it around. But the fact that we have these divisions shows we're not always surrendered to the spirit. Quarreling is a reality in the church because selfishness and other sins are realities in the church. And because of quarreling, the father is dishonored, the son is disgraced, and his people are demoralized and discredited, and the world is turned off and confirmed in unbelief. Fractured fellowship robs Christians of joy and effectiveness. It robs God of glory and robs the world of a true testimony of the gospel. It's a a high price for an ego trip. When I first came to this church, it had split over property issues, and then there was about to split again over the firing of the last pastor. I tried to get each side to recognize that that there should be forgiveness, that they should let go of past issues and forgive one another and just move forward as we're commanded to by Jesus to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Colossians 3.13 commands us bearing with one another. Bearing with. That, That sounds like it's not gonna always be easy, Amen bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Wow. Does that sound like a command to you? Sounds like a command to me. But each side had their heels dug in in that situation and they would not humble themselves. That's putting ego before the Lord and refusing to obey Him. It wasn't me they were rejecting, it was God's Word. And that's exactly what was happening in the Church of Corinth. Paul started with the most important, urgent problem. The Church had separated into factions. Divisions are a work of man's fallen nature. We can have different opinions and interpretations, but the love of Christ and for one another is such a priority that little differences over issues that are not clear in the word of God should never divide us. We must humble ourselves and find a way to reach united decisions, or simply let the elders lead us forward. Now, not everyone's gonna be happy about every decision, but we trust the Lord that he will have his way and we move on and put the differences behind us. Love is the priority and the first fruit of the spirit. Jesus' high priestly prayer focused on the unity of believers. Jesus declared that it was our unity that would cause the world to believe. That means when we cause disunity because we consider our opinion more important than others, and we insist on it that we hinder people from believing in Christ. When you look at it that way, it should make us all cringe at the thought of being that stubborn. It should help us prefer others above ourselves, and love others is a sign that we truly love God. The Apostle John wrote, Paul was pleading them with them to have the same mind and the same judgment, which means that in serious and key issues that they would support the elders' decisions, even if they had another opinion. We see that in the church councils and acts and in the description of the role of elders. The term elder is used interchangeably in some passages with shepherds and pastors. They are to lead and feed the flock and serve them. Therefore, when issues come up upon which there are various opinions, the elders will seek the Lord and seek the great shepherd and his leading to search out the word. And they will come to a conclusion when they are all of the same mind. In other words, in unity, complete unity. The elders should not make a decision unless every one of them is united in the decision. That sometimes takes time but it's a safe way to go forward. That's why it's so important to have elders that meet the qualifications of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. This subject is a timely message for the church of the 21st century because we've separated into a 1,000 different factions which has weakened the church's testimony in the world. Now, of course we should hold to biblical truth, and if necessary, we should separate over heresy. We must stand firm on the word of God and refuse to compromise what is clear in scripture. But too often, we divide over minor doctrines or ceremonial differences. Our independent spirit in America even has us church hopping to find out which one we like best, at least for the moment and then on to another one when we have a minor disagreement. This shows little commitment to one another, which defies what the Bible's description of what we're to be, a family. We can't divorce ourselves from our family, nor should we divorce ourselves from our spiritual family. Paul has reminded them of his authority as an an apostle, but he pleads with them for unity, twice calling them brothers. And you can sense in that his, his anguish for their unity to be restored. To that brotherly affection, he adds authority by the name of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate authority. So Jesus calls them to be united in him. The church is one body of Christ in, in the world and all is to be done for his glory, not the glory of man. That's the basis for Paul's call for all to agree. His wording literally means, you should speak the same things. Every church body should be united around the basic biblical doctrines. Inerrancy of scripture, the Trinity, the incarnation and virgin birth, the sinless life of Jesus, his atoning death and his victory over death, the great commission to make disciples and the indwelling Holy Spirit, the coming return of Christ, final judgment and his eternal reign. Those are the clear essentials of our faith and we should be united around those things. If the scripture is clear on an issue, to argue against that is then to argue against God. There are many other minor doctrines and each church body, in other words, each church assembly needs to decide where they stand for the sake of unity in that particular church. We can be in fellowship and disagree over minor issues in which the scriptures are not clear, but we should not try to convince others within a church body that our view is the only correct one. Doing so just starts factions and confuses new believers. Verse 11. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So the result of dividing into factions results in quarreling, contention, and strife. In other words, and I know better than you do, (laughs) members of one prominent family in Corinth had reported this problem to Paul, that that's what was going on there. And so Paul felt the urgency to address it. James tells us that our quarreling comes from our passions that are at war within us. We need to humble ourselves and agree with one another. If the other person has their way and they're wrong, well, hey, you were proved right, okay? If they're right, you can thank God you weren't pushy and proved to be wrong. Isn't that a good way to look at it? If it's over leadership, as is in the case here, trust the Lord to work it out and realize it's the same Lord working in each leader. Different personalities are reached by different styles. Have the same mind and the same judgment. In other words, focus on what you agree on, the basics of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And set aside those minor differences so that your unity will glorify God. Most people build factions over minor things like not having their way about some physical thing in the building or some minor doctrinal issue. They forget we're a family and you don't split family over trivial issues. Remember that everything we see is temporal. It's great that we have new carpet, but one day they'll be tearing it out, amen? We, what we don't see is eternal. The things we fuss over are often just a blip in time and we forget to emphasize the eternal. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could put on a a pair of future glasses and just look down the road in 10 years? I think if we did, we'd go, what was that thing we were arguing about back there? I completely forgot about it. And look, it didn't make any difference one way or the other. Or better yet, what if we could get a glimpse of heaven and realize we were wasting time with our little petty arguments, detracting from the kingdom of God? Verse 12, what I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Sivas or I follow Christ. The church in Corinth was acting like the citizens of Corinth who were all about patronage. Who you are in Corinth at the time defend, depended on who your, who, who your patron was. It made all the difference in, in your ability to, to make money and in your influence uh, in the city. Who's your sponsor? My sponsor's better than your sponsors. No, mine's more important than yours. Patronage is our escapist fix to numb the suspicion and fear that there's something wrong with the world and that it might be us. This reminds me of denominations. You know, Luther was frustrated with people calling themselves Lutherans. It really irritated him. He insisted that they call themselves Christians. But what do we do after Luther dies? (laughs) We ignore what he said. We just can't seem to help our competitive nature and our pride in being the ones who are special. Of course, you think your church is the best one for you or you wouldn't be, you'd be going to a different one. But at the same time, recognize that other Bible-believing churches are the best one for those who attend there and that we are all one in Christ. Though there are always competitive pastors and attendees, the church should never be about competition with other churches, other Bible-believing churches. We should never be encouraging someone to leave their church to come to ours, unless, of course, their church is heretical. We are competing with the world and the devil for the souls of mankind, not with other churches for the number of attendees, amen? If our focus is on Jesus, then we'll be great for, for fellow soldiers in Christ wherever they attend. It's interesting, you know, that on the mission field that denominationalism breaks down because they're surrounded by uh, the enemies all around them, the enemies at work all around them. They come together because they all have the same mission to reach the lost for Christ. It reminds me of the... the uh, the two cowboys who were heard they could get um, so much money for every Indian scalp. And so they went out and into the field and they camped and they woke up in the morning and one of them went outside the tent and said, we are completely surrounded by Indians. And the, his friend said, we're going to be rich. <laughs> yeah, or you're going to die. <laughs> but that's how the... The churches on the mission field were surrounded by the enemy working in, in, the, in all the strange kinds of animism and things that keep their souls in bondage. All the false teachings their cultures have grown up with we're bringing them the truth and the love of Jesus Christ to set them free so we come together and work together. But here where we have so many options and the enemy, the need around us doesn't seem so obvious, we tend to work independently. Names and peripheral doctrines do define where we stand, but they can also divide, and the body is not divided into parts, separated from one another. It's the same Lord working in each. We should learn to appreciate the differences in those who have a different emphasis. Some churches focus on the gifts of the spirit, some on evangelism, some on teaching the word and discipleship, some on serving the needs in the community. Each is an expression of Christ and tends to reach people that other emphasis would not reach. Paul's writing because the church was dividing into groups over which pastor or elder that they liked the best. So there was the Paul group. They probably liked really deep doctrinal teaching. There was the Apollos group. They liked eloquent explanations. The Cephas group probably liked Peter's down-to-earth explanations and his personal experiences with Peter. And then there's the Christ group, which may have been like some today who don't think they need pastors or teachers, which the word declares has been given as a gift by God to the church. The cult of personality ends up in, in focusing on the teacher rather than on the message. The same thing's happening today. You know, some are fans of Franklin Graham, others, Charles Stanley's the best, I listen to John MacArthur, and so on and so on. There's nothing wrong with having a favorite style, but it's when we emphasize the man to the exclusion of all others and boast in him rather than the cross that we cause divisions. None of those teachers in Corinth or none that I just mentioned would encourage that to take place. If you hear a preacher say that he is the only one you should listen to, run. It's a sign of a dangerous ego. It's a cult-like mentality. We all have our preferences, but we must realize that it's a choice to focus on one portion of Christian doctrine. And when we do that in neglect or even denial of the rest, we become out of balance and at risk becoming heretical. Instead, we should appreciate the other portions of doctrine emphasized by other Bible-believing churches. We should avoid speaking negatively about those with different emphasis, as if we had chosen the best and they're somehow not as important as we are. Our focus should always be on knowing Jesus, knowing his word, and making disciples. That is the great commission That's Jesus' last request to us, to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Is Christ divided? Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Are there factions in Christ? No. He's not divided. May we have a different, we may have div- different convictions as to the meaning interpretation of non-essential scripture passages, but Christ is not divided. We may have different emphasis, but Jesus is the truth. He never changes. He's indivisible. And when the focus turns from Jesus to any other man, there will always be distortions of who God is. For Jesus alone is the exact imprint of God's nature. That's Hebrews 1, three. No other man has a corner on the truth. Whether it's the Pope or the Dalai Lama or your favorite preacher, to be human is to be fallible. Some in Corinth appear to have been following the individual who baptized them. Paul didn't want followers for himself, he he was making disciples for Jesus. He did not want to create the Paul denomination, the first church of St. Paul. By the way, there are some of those. He wanted all the focus to be on Jesus and that should be the goal of every godly pastor and ministry. Ministries that name themselves after their leader's name often end up having to change the name when the leader's weaknesses are exposed. There's an important lesson in that Paul only baptized a few people. He let the local elders do the work to take the focus off him. He wanted them to see Jesus in their leaders and in their own lives. And that should be our goal as well. We're not dependent on any man other than the man, Christ Jesus. Leaders will pass away but the mission of advancing God's kingdom in the hearts of mankind must go on. You know, several of our leaders who I thought were essential to the ministry of Wayside are now with Jesus and the work goes on and God raises up people to take their place. It's his work and while we honor people for their service, it's all for the glory of God. We are dispensable and I include myself. Someone said that if I was gonna, uh, were to leave the church, the church would cease. God forbid. I'm just one of a string of pastors who've led wayside over the decades. Under some of the previous pastors, the attendance was three times as large. Eventually, God's going to move me on or I'll get too old or my mind will get too muddled or whatever to fill this role. And you know what? The elders will carry on and God will bring somebody else to be the lead teacher. But by God's grace, the lead pastor and elders will do a better job discipling others to follow Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. He is our lodestar. He is our everything, amen? 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul saw that the proclamation of the gospel was more important than baptism. It isn't that baptism is important, but the emphasis is on proclaiming the good news of what Jesus has done for us. For that alone is essential to salvation. The Corinthians needed to focus on the message more than the messenger. That should be true of every church body. Paul, Paul's language, Paul's writing was in what we say is Koine Greek. In other words, the common street language that people spoke. And that culture at that time, they, they really, um, they thought that eloquent speech, uh, convincing speech was related to truth. But Paul refused to use that style of speaking. He, he didn't want them to be focused on, his, on eloquence, on his style of rhetoric. He wanted them to be focused on the message. When we preach or witness, we have to be careful to use common, easily understandable language and rely on the Holy Spirit to bring the truth of the message home to their hearts and to stir them. That's the power. It's the word of God that's the power. It's not the world's wisdom or style. It's wisdom and power of God in his word and his spirit. We can empty the cross of its power if we try to be convincing or or use some standard method. Sincerity communicates. And when we sincerely share what the cross means to us and the, the power of the Holy Spirit, it touches hearts. It may not be received, but at least they'll know you believe it. That often results in the hearer considering that message. The Spirit can stir your words in their hearts when the appropriate time comes. The sad thing about duty-bound sharing the message is that people realize when it's not done out of love, they can sense it. They don't wanna become someone who has to go around doing the same thing. It pushes them away from the gospel. I remember uh, uh, someone one time um, in a community here in Sedona, their power line came down. Somehow it got severed. It's laying in the street, and so APS came and they had to block the street off. And all the residents were out, standing around looking at what was happening because their power's off. And and um, one lady who attended the church here, someone came up to her and said, "Oh, here comes so and so. He's always trying to cram Jesus down my throat." And I thought, how sad that is. Now, I don't know, maybe, maybe she just was, t- took offense to the gospel, but perhaps it was the person's way of expressing the message wasn't out of love, wasn't out of compassion with gentleness and kindness. Certainly, we don't want people to think of us um, with anything other than love and grace and compassion, consideration. You know, they called Jesus the friend of sinners. And I think they used it, I know they used it as a derogatory term, right? Oh, there's that Jesus. He's always hanging out with sinners. I think Jesus loved the title. Because he had grace, he had mercy for them. He had the Father's love for them. And they're the ones more likely to listen because they know they need help. The power of the cross is not how much Bible you know, it's not how eloquent your explanations are. If it was, it would carry only a kind of temporary persuasion. The power of the cross that transformed your life is conveyed in your sincerity and conviction from your personal encounter with Christ and your communion with him. That's power that's greater than any intellectual persuasion or methods taught by man, It's the power of the Holy Spirit that grabs the heart and brings the person into the life-changing presence of Jesus. And you know one way you can do that is ask them if you can pray with them. There's somehow you can pray for them. And take their hand and pray from talk to Jesus. Because when you do, the presence of Christ comes, and they know it. They can sense it. This is our introduction to the first problem Paul is confronting, which is the cult of personality. It was tearing the church into separate factions. The root of the problem was the ego of those in the church body. It was contrary to the spirit of Jesus and his high priestly prayer in John 17 that we all be one in him. It took the focus off Jesus. I plead with you congregation. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all see that it is Jesus who leads this church through your elders, that each of you is presently an essential part of this body of believers, but also recognize that every one of us is dispensable. This is God's church. If the focus is on Jesus and God's word with an effort to disciple new believers, then God will continue to bless and provide. The work is not dependent on any individual. It's dependent on an all-powerful God. Let us keep our eyes on him and place our trust in him and see what he can do. Amen.